Welcome to Ask Away with Vince and Joe Vitale and hosted by Michael Davis. Vince and Joe Vitale are currently leading the Zacharias Institute. Both hold doctorates from the University of Oxford, Vince in philosophy, and Joe in women in the Old Testament. In a world that increasingly sees the Christian faith is irrational and irrelevant, it is more important than ever for believers to be prepared to give a defense for the faith. Ask Away is brought to you by Robbie Zacharias International Ministries. It's time to Ask Away. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ask Away with Vincent Joe Vitale. I am your host, Michael Davis. Even though Easter has been relegated by our culture to a second-class holiday on the same level of importance as Mother's Day or Valentine's Day, the glorious truth of the gospel is that Easter is a day that changed everything. Christianity hinges on the truth that Jesus died to save sinners and proved that he had the ability to do so by being raised from the dead. How do we express to our unbelieving friends and family members the truth and importance of Easter and of the resurrection of Jesus? But before we get started, Vince, could you tell the parents of high school and college students why they should send their kids to our upcoming refresh conference coming up this July at the Zacharias Institute? Thanks, Michael. Yeah, that'll be July 24th to 27th. And last year, uh, Refresh was absolutely one of the highlights uh, of our year. And I really think I meet so many college students around the country. And I really think that for so many, the difference between whether they stay strong in their faith in college or whether they waver in their faith in college is whether or not their questions have been taken seriously before they arrive and whether they arrive on campus feeling confident in the answers that Christianity has to the toughest questions questions of today's culture. That's what Refresh is all about. We're going to journey with the students all week, mentor them, take their questions seriously, answer those questions so that they can arrive on campus confident in their faith. Absolutely. It's going to be a great time. I remember last uh, last year, I, this is not a very, this is not a lighthearted event. This is an intense week of just really just digging into apologetics questions. Uh, the, the kids really kind of combine and and really kind of cohes into like this this awesome group of of like with a singular focus of sharing the gospel. It was really an experience to behold. Uh, I hope you guys uh, either come to it if you're of high school age or college students, or if you've got children who are uh, or of that age uh, to send them. It is an amazing experience. So let's get into our first question from John. Per your recent podcast, who needs a talking donkey? Could you discuss the resurrection of Jesus, giving reasons why unbelievers should take it into serious consideration? Oh, thanks, John. I'm really excited to talk about this topic, and I really appreciate the fact that we had an episode called Who Needs a Talking Donkey? Well done, whoever uh, decided on that title. But You're we welcome. get really We get really excited talking about uh, the resurrection. This was significant in uh, our personal stories. For me, this was absolutely critical in my own journey of faith to see that the miracle of the resurrection could actually be explored and looked into and that there was evidence for it. The Bible says God has provided confirmation for all by raising Jesus from the dead. And I can remember in college when that just seemed like a crazy idea to me. And then I looked into it and I was absolutely blown away by what I found. Maybe first, let me just preempt one type of objection you often get when you start to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Some people want to say, look, I've never seen someone rise from the dead. No one that I know has ever seen anyone rise from the dead. So why should I believe that Jesus did? Well, the fact that resurrections don't normally happen, it's not an everyday occurrence, is actually not good reason to be skeptical of the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because if God was going to use a miraculous event to put his stamp of approval on the life of Jesus as utterly unique— 
then it would have to be through something which was utterly unique. If you go to a store to buy a shirt and every shirt in the store is gray or black, but there's one blue shirt, the probability of you buying that blue shirt is probably higher than for the other shirts precisely because of its uniqueness. And so the uniqueness of the resurrection is exactly what we should expect to find if God was using it in a very distinctive, important way. And therefore, that's not evidence against it. That's actually evidence for it. Another criticism that I'll often sometimes hear is people say, well, ancient mythology is packed with stories of dying and rising gods. It was James Frazier who wrote The Golden Bough um, a a long time ago now first made this claim. um, And it was popular for quite a while, this idea that Christianity is just a copycat religion, that actually um, this idea of Jesus dying and rising wasn't unique at all, but just just a, a kind of myth going around at the time. Now, actually, although this idea has resurfaced in recent years, it's not a position that any scholars take with any real seriousness. And that's partly because often this um, this argument is based on, on a chronological mistake because a lot of these uh, religions that you see that that preach this idea of dying and rising gods actually come after Christianity, not before. So if anyone's copycatting, it tends to be the other way around. But even when you look at ancient myths that predate Christianity, so for example, one that people will often point to is the myth of Osiris, who is an Egyptian deity who was uh, killed by his brother and he's chopped up into 14 pieces and then the pieces are, are scattered around throughout Egypt. And then the goddess Isis, she gathers up the pieces and um, puts them back to life. Though she can't find one of the pieces, so there's only 13 and... Uh, Um, And even so, when he comes back to life, some of the myths actually don't have him coming back at all, some versions of it. And others don't talk about him as being resurrected, but really he he becomes the lord of the underworld. So when scholars actually really dig into these things, far more than finding commonalities, you find extreme differences. Um, So certain uh, scholars will point to the fact that these deities aren't so much dying and rising deities, but more disappearing deities or dying deities, because either um, when they return, they haven't died, or in the second case, the gods die, but they don't actually return. So um, when you really get into it, uh, it's actually hard to find any real strong commonalities. And ironically, it's Bart Ehrman, who is not himself a particular fan of, of the Christian faith, but you know, is a is a renowned atheistic critical scholar, and he'll say, "Well, um, actually, there aren't any parallels to this idea of um, of belief in a man being crucified for the atonement of sin." And and actually, it's just not a very compelling case from a scholarly perspective. It's also worth noting that for the Jews themselves, this this certainly wasn't an idea embedded in their belief system already. For them, it's an absolute shock that Jesus dies and even more a shock when he comes back to life. It's not something that they're expecting. Once he dies, they're thinking game over. You know, we thought we, we believed this guy and we thought he could be the hope of Israel, but this has come to an end. And then the final thing I want to say here is just when you when you compare the types of writings that we're reading um, that the, there's just a profound difference between the way the New Testament is written as an actual historical event situated in a certain place, in a certain time of history, with dates, with with people that you can go and look up. And and it's almost as if, you know, the, the writers of the Gospels are saying, consider this for yourself. Come and look at the evidence. Come and investigate this because we're making a historical claim that, that God left a historical footprint in time. And if that's the case, then there should be evidence for it that we're invited to look at. Yeah, that's great. And one of the things I really appreciate is that you can make a compelling argument for the resurrection of Jesus based around just one passage of Scripture. And I turn to this passage all the time with people and find it really, really impactful uh, in their lives. So this is from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting in verse 3. It's a creed that predates the letter uh, itself. Uh, And let me read that to you. 
It starts in verse 3. It's just a short paragraph. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And that language, for what I received, I passed on to you, that's an official rabbinic language for the passing on of a formal tradition. You see exactly the same language in 1 Corinthians 11 when it's talking about the Lord's Supper. And then this is the creed, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. I love that, as if to say, if you don't believe me, go out and ask them yourself. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born." This is an incredible, incredible passage, and here's why. Scholars agree, not just Christian scholars, but even some of the most critical scholars of Christianity, they agree that this creed dates back to within a couple of years at most after Jesus' death. Even the most critical scholars agree about that, and that is absolutely remarkable. And here's why. This is what is the situation because of that. We have three parts to the history, history of Christianity. Part one, as Joe began uh, to speak to, Jesus had a following. That following believed that he was the Messiah. The Jewish conception of a Messiah would have thought that he was going to rise to earthly power. He was going to become an earthly king and reign on that throne forever. He was going to rescue the Jewish people from the heavy hand of Rome. And then Jesus, this man who they followed, died on a cross. That should have been the end of the movement. No one would have seen that coming. That would have undermined what his followers thought and who they thought that he was. Then skip over the history of Christianity part two, and then you wind up at the history of Christianity part three, very shortly after the death of Jesus on a cross, you get the absolute eruption of Christianity. Jewish people known for their utter commitment to the oneness of God are worshiping a crucified human being as divine, as God himself, and they're giving their lives rather than deny that. We have these amazing letters, even from that first generation, one from Pliny the Younger, a governor at the time in northwest Turkey, and he says, I asked them if they are Christian, and if they say they are, I repeat the question a second or and a third time, and I warn them of the punishment if they continue to say that they are. And when they continue to say that they're Christians, I have no choice but to lead them away to execution. All these Christians who walked with Jesus had to do was say, fine, I'm not a Christian. Then they could have went home to their homes and continued to worship him. But they were so convinced that they had seen this man, Jesus, after he had clearly been killed and they had spent time with him that they were willing to give their lives for it. The question is, what bridges the gap between the history of Christianity part one, what should have been the movement-ending death of Jesus, and the history of Christianity part three, the absolute eruption of Christianity, hundreds of people claiming that they had seen him after he had clearly died, and this movement spreading so quickly that it becomes the religion of the Roman Empire within three centuries. What accounts for that? People willing to give their lives rather than deny that they had seen Jesus after his resurrection. That's the question. And what I would say, what I often say to people that I'm conversing with is that criticism without alternative is empty. You've heard me use that phrase before. How do we get from the history of Christianity part one to the history of Christianity part three? 
for a Christian, what fills that gap, what bridges that gap is the resurrection. If that's not your bridge, that's okay. But then let's look at the alternative explanations and see how they stack up. And I don't think they stack up very well. Yeah, so Vince has mentioned you know, the, the, the biggest um, alternative people put in place, you know, is this idea of legendary development, which is completely destroyed when you realize how early that creed was. But, the, you know, some of the other alternatives that people sometimes throw around is they'll say, well, clearly it was the disciples, right? The disciples stole the body. They um, they were they were just lying about what they saw. And um, it's an interesting idea, but Vince has already gestured to this fact that actually, um you know, a, a hoax might be fun for a while, but no one really, no one really dies for one, right? Let alone, ele- you know, eleven out of the twelve of Jesus' disciples, who um, it seems highly probable were, were martyred for their faith. Let alone so many of the other first followers who were eyewitnesses to Jesus, who also went and did the same. So the question is, what would be in it for them? What would their motivation be if if they were lying? Because it's not like being a leader of the early church was a particularly glamorous or powerful or attractive position to be. In. And and you're also ignoring the fact there that, that these were Jews who actually believed that and that God did exist, that um, it was blasphemous to claim that somebody was God if they're not, and uh, that they would come under judgment for making such a claim mm. if they were lying about it. So it's not even like they could just li- you know, li- live out their lives making the most of, of this lie they're telling, and then there wouldn't be any consequences for them. So it's, it's kind of, it's hard to establish that motive or believe that one. Yeah, I really like how... Um Blaise Pascal put it, he said, I believe in witnesses that get their throats cut. And it just gets at this idea yeah. that there wasn't any motivation. And just one other, one other quotation I'll read to you, which I think is so great. This is by Chuck Colson. Uh, he was special counsel to the president, uh, President Richard Nixon, from 1969 to 1973. He went to prison uh, for being involved in Watergate, but he had a conversion to Christianity, and he wound up founding uh, Prison Fellowship. And here's what he said. He said, why Jesus and not some other religious leader? The truth turns on the fact of Jesus Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, a couple of other, you know, if we're talking about alternative theories that people put out, another one people say is, oh, mass hallucination. You know, um, the disciples clearly, they you know, they were smoking something and um, oh, yeah. they, they just, oh, you know, they're in such a state of hysteria and, you know, emotionalism. They were just overwrought by their feelings. They, you know, something just happened to them and they, they thought they saw Jesus, but it wasn't really Jesus. Um, once again, that that one is a really hard one to sustain, not only because in, in any psychological literature, there just isn't evidence to suggest that such a mass hallucination is actually really possible with people coming away, really experiencing and believing that they've seen the same thing, let alone when you look at the kind of resurrection accounts that we have, because it's not just like there are, there are a few disciples in one place and they just happen to see Jesus once and, and then they run away and tell everyone about it. But no, these are multiple appearances in different locations to different groups of people, some of them small gathering, others you know, it says uh, 
Jesus appeared to 500 um, at one point. So different groups, people in different places, but also, you know, they, this isn't just a sort of hallucination where, you know, um, you, you think you're seeing something, but this is this is Jesus they saw eating a, a fish. This was a Jesus that they saw uh, interacting with people. Thomas even reaches out, you know, and touches his side. And, and I love that. You see the radical skepticism of someone who actually refuses to believe in the hallucination Jesus until he's seen it for himself. And then Jesus appears to him and says, hey, you know, touch the wounds of my hands and and the one in, in my side stopped doubting and believe. Um, so it's a little bit more than just a, a hallucination going on here. I do love that. I love that one of the appearances of Jesus basically cooking breakfast for the disciples <laughs> on the beach. You right. know, it's, I love that he came back in such a personal and real way, not just a passing glance, but he spent time with them. And the other thing about hallucination theory is it doesn't account for the empty tomb, yeah. which is also yeah. a really well-attested historical fact. And it doesn't account for the fact that no one could produce Jesus's body, even though a Roman guard was stationed at the tomb. Christianity is the most falsifiable of all the religions. All you had to do was go into the tomb, which everyone would have known where it was, and produce Jesus's bones. It's not that it's not falsifiable. It's just that no one's been able to falsify it because they were never able to produce Jesus's bones. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, it, it, you know, I've actually had conversations regarding the, you know, the martyrdom of the apostles and of the early Christians, and people will say, well, people die for their faith all the time. Um, you look at, uh, you know, people who are, are suicide bombers or people who do this stuff. And, and the, the, the truth is people die for an unseen faith all the time. No one dies for what they know is an absolute mm-hmm. lie. Right. Um, I will tell you that the Roman Empire would have loved to have published all over the place a recantation of one of the apostles or of the early, uh, the early Christians. They mm-hmm. would have published it everywhere. The fact that they did not get a single person. Um, uh, to to recant what they said is if, if that's not evidence enough, it's that's it's just it screams that this is absolutely the truth. Mm-hmm. That's really well said. And you know, one other alternative, this idea some people have said, I think Schleiermacher held to this view that Jesus faked his death yeah. on the cross. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's called a swoon theory. And on the on the one hand, medically. That's an incredible claim to make that he even could have survived what he went through both in the way he was tortured prior to the cross and then on the cross as well. But the other point about that is remember he shows up on the third day to his followers and they worship him as divine. Mm -hmm. Even if Jesus somehow managed to escape from the cross, what he went through, he would have been hanging on to life barely, barely. If he were simply a human being and nothing more, there's no way you could have appeared to your followers three days later in any way that would have elicited worship. And all it would have elicited is we need to get this you know, person to a, to a medic. So the fact that he appeared in a way which caused Jewish people who would have been so firm about the oneness of God to worship Jesus, uh, a human person, as both fully human and fully divine as God, uh, speaks to the fact that that idea of Jesus faking his death is not plausible either. And Joe's already spoken about um, the idea of legendary development. A hundred years ago, that would have been a more dominant view. But we know that it takes two to three generations for any significant legendary development to work its way into an ancient text. And here we have this creed from 1 Corinthians 15, which is talking about all of these appearances of Jesus after his death. And it's dated to within just two years or less of his actual crucifixion. And so by the standards of trying to claim legendary development, it's not even close. It's just far, far too quick. Not, not to mention that the epistles come just, you know, a very, you know, 10 or 15 years after, and then the gospel's coming, you know, 50 or 60 years after. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's 
I, I think that it if you have a presupposition that this is false, you're going to try to find ways to disprove it. But this is not Christianity is not based about a single person going out into the mountains and writing a book on 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 living a life that is pleasing to God. It is a religion that is based on a man who was killed and claimed to have risen from the dead. If this is not true, this is literally the silliest way to start a religion of of, of all time. It makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, yeah, it really well said, and I like what you said there. Of course, if your starting point is a miracle, never could have happened. Well, yeah, you're going to come to that conclusion no matter what. But if you think it's even possible that God could exist, that a miracle could have happened, you couldn't get more substantial evidence than what we have for the resurrection. That just blew my mind when I first looked into it, and many people have found the same. One of my uh, previous colleagues at Oxford University, Professor Richard Swinburne, uh, emeritus professor now, I think he's probably the most influential British philosopher of religion of the last 60 years. He held the head post in philosophy of religion at Oxford. He published a book in 2003. It's called The Resurrection of God Incarnate. And in that book, he argues that his conclusion is that on the available evidence today, it is 97% probable that Jesus literally, historically, miraculously rose from the dead. Now, he says you can't take the number too seriously. He's not trying to say we can be that precise with these things. He likes to work with probability theory, and so he plugs in numbers that are just supposed to be guesstimates at each point in the argument. But still, the fact that someone of his intellectual credibility can make that sort of claim, make it in print, have it be published by Oxford University Press, and then defend that claim and defend it strongly at top academic conferences around the world shows that the idea that there simply couldn't be evidence for the resurrection of Jesus simply is not true. And if you haven't looked into it yourself, whether you're a non-Christian who needs to look into it so you can see, should I trust this person of Jesus? Or whether you're a Christian who wants to be able to share your faith in a compelling way with your friends, look into the evidence for this. The Resurrection of God Incarnate is that book. That's quite a technical book, but there's also a simpler version of it just called Was Jesus God? That might be something worth picking up. And he Wright also wrote a, a fantastic treatment on uh, on the resurrection and proving it as well. That's right. And uh, sorry, just to jump in, Michael, as well, because you're right. We should say N.T. Wright, Gary Habermas, William Lane Craig, Mike Lycona. Those would mm-hmm. also be three of the key um, evangelical scholars that I would go to to get more information on this. I'd also just encourage you, you know, don't, you don't even just need to go to the secondary sources, but just spend time reading the gospel, spend time going over these texts. I find the level of detail and um, the eyewitness material that's recorded there just absolutely astonishing. Just the little things like, for example, you know, people often want to talk about swoon theory, right? But um, but we, we know that uh, Roman soldiers actually, that their responsibility was so serious when it came to crucifixion that if they, if, if ever someone survived the experience of crucifixion, then the soldiers themselves would be put to death because they were the ones responsible for ensuring that that took place. And, and we see the detail recorded of that in the Gospels that actually Jesus, um, because of the seriousness of, of his wounds before the crucifixion, he actually dies um, earlier than the others. And so they don't break his legs like they would for everyone else to speed up as, asphyxiation. But what they do do is they, they stab him in the side. They put a spear to his side to ensure that that he really is dead. Um, another detail that I find remarkable that isn't just isn't something you would ever put into the resurrection story if you were making this thing up. And I love this so much is that it's the women who were the first witnesses to the resurrection. And, and that's just so remarkable at a time when uh, a woman's testimony was considered so unreliable, it wouldn't even be included in a Jewish court of law. And yet, um, the credibility of, of the resurrection, the most significant 
significant historical event of all time rests upon the testimony of these women who were the first to the tomb. So it's details like that you think if someone was just sitting down to make up a story about this thing, that is not the way they would have had it go. So this actually leads into the next question, and I think the I think really hits the the pulse of why we're talking about this. Because I believe in God, but does it really matter whether Jesus rose from the dead? And um, really great question here. Um, two two things I would want to say to that. Firstly, that. The resurrection matters because, firstly, it validates Jesus' identity. So if if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, um, then he's essentially a, a failed prophet. Maybe, you know, his death is a good example for us of how to um, live well and die well and and, and um, be sacrificial in the way that you do those things. But, but it wouldn't have any power. And that's my second point, that actually we need the cross. We need Jesus to have died on the cross because that's the place where sin is defeated and where the consequence of sin, which is death, is also defeated. And the sign for us that sin has been defeated is the fact that Jesus overcomes death. And that's something that as Christians gives us hope that for us too, when we trust in Jesus, that um, not only will sin be defeated in our own lives, but we too um, will be raised with Christ. Yes, and Paul speaks to this uh, directly as well. Actually, I love that in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we can answer both of these questions. The question about the evidence for the resurrection at the beginning of the chapter, and then later on uh, in verse 14, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And then he says in verse 19, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So this question, I believe in God, uh, but does it really matter whether Jesus rose from the dead? I think it could be a question about whether it's okay to prioritize feelings over facts. Uh, Maybe faith makes us feel good. Does it actually matter if it's true, if it's making you happy? And I think that's a really important question. I think it's a really important question for us as a society, and I think it's a question uh, that we're going to be answering a lot question just like that in the decades to come. Uh, It's no longer a science fiction question. We're going to be answering questions about whether it's okay to get our primary feelings of happiness and pleasure from virtual reality, even though it's not actual reality. We're going to be answering questions to the society about whether we're content to make love with sex robots when it's not actually making love. Uh, These are really difficult. In some ways, morally, they shouldn't be difficult but they're going to be challenging questions for our society. And they're all questions about whether it's okay to prioritize feelings even when they don't correlate with the facts. I think that's really dangerous. And interestingly, we would not do that in any other realm of inquiry. We don't think it's okay to uh, let a plane fly just because we want to get home more quickly and somebody wants to leave work early if the mechanics of the plane aren't functioning properly. We don't think that uh, it's okay to uh, convict someone as guilty and short-circuit the jury process because we want to get home for dinner. We don't generally think it's okay to let our feelings, rather than the facts of the matter, determine how we're going to act, what we're committed to, uh, and what we trust. And I think it's very dangerous if we do that in the context of faith and religion as well. And just one final point to this question, which is, you know, if if you're saying, I believe in God, does it matter whether Jesus rose from the dead? It really matters um, if, if you want to actually have a relationship with God as opposed to just intellectual assent. Because the truth of the matter is, if you take Jesus and the cross and the resurrection out of the picture, then what we're left with um, is a relationship with God that is going to depend on the way that we've lived. It's going to come down to our works and how 
how good we've been or how bad we've been as to how God is going to judge us. And um, that's a little bit of a scary place for all of us to be in, because I think if we're really honest about the state of the human condition, the state of our own hearts, none of us are in a great situation when it comes to um, standing before God. In fact, you know, the Bible talks about us being dead in our sins. It says we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And um, I, I was thinking about this the other day when um, uh, my my four-year-old goddaughter, Karis, there's a nursery rhyme that, that she loves called Humpty Dumpty. I don't know if you have that in this country, we but um, it's it's a classic, but it, but it goes, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't but Humpty Dumpty together again. And when you think about it, that's a totally tragic story that we tell our, um, our four-year-old children. Um, <laughs> it's pretty sad and it's pretty brutal. But actually, I think there's something kind of profound about it. I mean, isn't that the story of every single one of us that basically we've fallen off the wall, we're lying in pieces, and try as we hard, nobody can put us back together again, not even ourselves. We've broken relationships with God, with each other and ourselves in the process. But um, the writer, Ellis Potter, just adds that actually for the Christian, there's one line missing from that poem. And um, and he says that it's this, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but the king could. And I just think that's amazing because isn't that exactly what happens at the cross, that that the king of the Jews, the king of the universe is nailed to that cross um, in order to put us back together again. And then he cries out, it is finished. And that's what's happening, that God comes down and he restores all of our broken pieces and he puts us back together again so that we can be in relationship with him, so that we don't just have to intellectually believe in God, but we can actually know him for ourselves. And the resurrection is our hope of that. That is the sign we look to, to know that death will not be the end, but in Christ, uh, we have the promise of eternal life. Amen. Count me in. That's fantastic. Uh, And I think you're absolutely right, Joe. Uh, It's about uh, relationship, uh, how much it matters that the resurrection is based in truth. You know, one of the worst things that can happen in life is if you go through life in a relationship where you think someone loves you, uh, and then you find out much later on that, in fact, they never loved you. Uh, and Christianity without the truth of the resurrection would be to live a life of faith where you think that God is the person who loves you most and that's the person that you love most. And then at, at the end, you find out not only that that love didn't exist, but that the person himself didn't even exist. That would be a devastating uh, realization and shows how the truth of the resurrection uh, is what our faith needs to be founded on. Well, guys, we are out of time. Vince, sum it up for us. Well, I think uh, we've covered a lot of ground here, uh, but I hope what you're taking away is, one, that there is such compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And if you have thought that faith and reason are in any way opposed, that is not the case. And starting with the evidence for the resurrection is a great way to see that. And then the second question of, does it really matter? I believe in God. Uh, Maybe I have a faith of some sort. Does it really matter if it's true, if it's based in facts? And we want to say that, yes, it does. Christianity cannot do the things it claims it can do if it is not based on facts. It claims that Jesus can grant forgiveness. It claims that life transformation is possible. God's Spirit can come to live within you and empower you to live the life that you were created to live. It claims that it can provide eternal life, that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, and Jesus claims that ultimately there's going to be a justice in the end. None of those things can happen if Christianity is not based on facts, and so I'm so glad that it is. Vincent Joe, thank you all for joining me, and uh, everyone, happy Easter. Happy Easter. Have a great Easter. Catch you guys next week. To find out more about our ministry or to donate, visit our website at rzim.org. 
If you're listening in Canada, that website is rzim.ca.